tick, 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 tock and greetings. This is the Ringing Ear Podcast, a show about music hosted by two former record store clerks, brought to you by KillBoringMusic.com, your ally in the crusade against boring music. I'm freelance writer Jeff Nail, a.k.a. senior critic at KBM and world's worst Little League coach. With me, as always, is photographer, writer, and Wichita's cuddliest polka fan, Ken Joby Job. Uh, our aim this week, as it is every week, is to act as your guides through all genres familiar or foreign, new or nostalgic, in order to help you, the listener, avoid boring music. Because, Joby, tell them what we do with boring music. We make it listen to Ned Flanders' grindcore band, Oakley Doakley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, welcome to episode 213, in which we are finally getting around to doing a proper deep dive. In other words, we're going to be diving deeply into one of music's most... Uh, well, I guess I'll just be nice and say well-known metal albums. Uh, but before we do that, Joby, how are you and what's been ringing in your ears? I'm okay. I'm hanging in there. Um, things are okay. What's ringing in my ears? Well, unfortunately, it is Ned Flanders' grindcore band Oakley Doakley. <laughs> yeah. um, I lost the, uh, the wager on our Hard Times episode and Matt and Bill were kind enough and oh so humorous enough to assign me the second album because one album from a novelty metal band is not enough uh oakley doakley's second album howdily toodily uh, t-w-o doodly yeah, yeah the first one was howdily doodly so this one is howdily toodily I listened to it about two and a half times and that that was that pretty much told me all I really needed to know it's not good it's actually worse than I expected, and I expected a giant turd. Well, anyway, so so Matt's uh, Matt Sencom of the Hard Times assigned you the less than enviable mission to listen to the second album by. Uh, Ar- I looked it up, Arizona band Oakley Doakley, and I I was calling I'm gonna call them comedy metal, and then I looked them up, and I think they call it Nettle. Mm-hmm. Get it? Yeah, they really uh they really drive those jokes into the into the ground. Um Are those jokes I couldn't I didn't well, recognize those jokes. <laughs> they're attempts at jokes, I guess. Uh So this is the but this is a real band. Well, it is, but I, if I I mean I, you know, I didn't put a whole lot of effort into this once I realized how bad it was, but if I'm right, uh-huh. I think they had almost a complete lineup change after the first album. Um so it's it's interesting because you know they I at least I believe they call themselves you know grindcore or death metal, but really I don't think that's what they want to be. They have to keep up appearances because that's how they market themselves. Uh huh. So there are bursts of little growls and really like you know like blast beats and things like that. But at its heart, this is not grindcore. This is like some kind of weird like butt rock metal. Yeah, it's some kind of like old school metal. Like these are guys who maybe were in a bar band and never quite got to the level they wanted to or something. And they've got all this material (laughs) because there's a lot of clean singing and clean guitar playing and stuff like that. Like it's really weird. It's not good. Well, I'll let you, I'll let you get even deeper into review, but I, I, the number one thing I wanted to know is, are they doing this for laughs or, or is it, is it just kind of a device, you know? I, I mean, I, I didn't really read any lyrics because I just didn't have, I just couldn't stomach it, but all the titles are plays on Flanders. So I think that the, most of the lyrics are ties back to Simpsons episodes and, 
you know, characteristics of Ned. And actually, they were just on The Simpsons. Now that I think about it, their video, their new video was on The Simpsons last week or the week before. Oh, really? So this is actually very timely. Well, uh, okay. Well, what else? What else about this record? I mean, it doesn't sound like you liked it even a little. No, no, I really didn't. And what also surprised me, too, the production is not very good either. It just doesn't even sound good. It sounded kind of muffled, kind of muddy. It, it you know, nothing. There was really nothing about it that was appealing in any way. Well, what good comes out of Phoenix? If you're going to be good out of Arizona, you got to do it from Tucson, I think. <laughs> there is one interesting thing, though. The uh, the the opening track and the, the lead single, uh, I think it was called, oh, God, what's it called? Ned Tribution or something like that? Ned? You, you asked I, me like I should know. <laughs> I, I, it's something like that. But anyway, it, it is very, very, very similar to a song from my old band, AYP. Oh, really? It, it's like two notes different from uh, a, a, an AYP song. It's just uh, got a little, it's missing a little something that we had. But it's, so that was really funny. Do you remember the name of, of the AYP song? I think it was Belief. I uh, I think that's the one it was called. It was a very uh, strong uh, anti-religion song. Uh-huh. And it was, uh, I think uh, when we recorded our demo with Jim Barnes, I think that was we, what we all agreed was our best song. And it had my favorite lyrics. Uh, Justin wrote some just fucking incendiary lyrics about religion, and I loved it. Uh, they were so strongly worded that they, I think they kept us from being put on a compilation album. Oh, wow. Because we, uh, I had made a connection with a guy in Bakersfield named Greg Looney, uh-huh. and uh, he was putting together a comp. And I, I mean, I, I talked to this guy on the phone like at least once or twice a week, you know, just to check up, see what was going on. You know, we like we became friends. Yeah. And I sent him that track and he was just like, yeah, do you um, you think you guys might have another, you have another track? (laughs) Like he, he didn't, I don't know if he was religious and we never just talked about, I don't know what happened, but he didn't care for that. Too, too controversial for Bakersfield. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Is that, now that's Justin, the the lyric writer you mentioned, that's Justin who's done artwork for us before, right? Yes. Yes. And uh, we've actually never properly plugged him before. Does he have a business name or something? Uh, well, I know I know he's part of Necro Sapien Press. I don't know if he has a business uh, website for his his personal like his commissions and the things he does uh, like personally. But he's got uh, oh god, uh, now I'm gonna look like such an asshole. He's got a a comic that he does with another guy, and it's called like Zombie Kill Squad or something like that. Uh, but he, it's uh, ne- Necro Sapien Press is the name of the yeah company. Yeah, it looks like uh, Necrosapien Press, the art of Justin White. So, And we've actually been in contact with him because he's uh, going to be designing our T-shirts. Yeah, yeah, we're going to have I, some big, big things coming. I guess we'll, we'll, I mean, big for us anyway, yeah. All right, well, uh, Oakley Doakley, if uh, you're picking one song off of their sophomore album, what is it? Uh, the one that stood out to me, uh, even though I still didn't consider it to be very good, uh, was the best song, but also the most fun to say, because if I'm, I hope I say it right, it's called Mer Diddly Erdler, I think. <laughs> Mer Diddly Erdler, something like that. Okay.
right. If you are this band, uh, what do you? What exactly are you aspiring to do? Is this it, or is there? Are you hoping this will lead to other gigs? I mean, it. it this just seems like such a non-starter to me. I, it's. It's fine that it's funny and it's. I guess it's arguably clever, but I, I mean, why do this at all? Well, I mean, you mean like if I were in their shoes, what would I want out of it? Yeah, I guess so. I would feel like the best you could hope for, like the best case scenario would be to maybe get an opening slot for a decent sized band, not a big band, but you know, decent, like above like clubs maybe. And then maybe you'd spin that into just making connections and getting into like a quote unquote real band. You know what I mean? Like, okay. That's all I can picture. Like, I don't know why else anyone would even bother. It seems pretty far removed for for them to be that strategic, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing if it was just an album, but they they do tour. You know, they are like out promoting this. So yeah, that you know, if it's different, you know, if it's just cutting a record as a joke, you know, that's that's one thing. But yeah, to actually go out and be on the road playing this stuff, it was so bad. I was more willing to spend time listening to Saint Anger. Oh, well, that's, there's our segue that, then. That's how bad it was. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Elephant in the Room is a uh, different beast today, but it, it it's still a thought-provoking, musically-related topic, isn't it? Usually, if we're lucky. I just mean to this week. I mean, it's, it's still those things, I would hope. Uh, the Elephant in the Room this week is the 2003 LP by San Francisco band... Hang on. Metallica? Metallica? Uh, am I saying that right? Oh, Metallica. Metallica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know them. Uh, Joby, how did we get here? Well, I'll tell you. I was driving to work one night uh, about, I don't know, maybe a month ago, six weeks ago. And I listened to, uh, to Sirius XM Liquid Metal on my way to work every night. Whether it's good music or not, I just listen to it. And I was almost to work and they started playing St. Anger, the title track. And I had a memory of liking that song. And when it came on, I, I turned it up because I hadn't heard it in so long. I turned it up pretty loud to get a good listen. And I was driving to work, pulling in thinking, you know, I, I don't hate this. I, mm -hmm. I, I know it gets tons of shit and it doesn't sound great. It, you know, it, it's got tons of issues, but I don't hate this. I'm going to okay. have to go back and, and listen. I think this would be an interesting, I was going to just, you know, use it as a Spotify wager, which is what I did originally. And then the more right, we talked, yeah. we thought, well, maybe we should just, cause I knew that if I assigned it to you, I was going to listen to it in depth too. You know, and I was yeah. like, well, we're going to have so much to say about it. It'll just cause us to have a super long episode. If it's not the main topic, I'm sort of on the fence here because there's a lot, a lot about this I don't like. I would argue that most of it I don't like. And mm -hmm. I know that people like to defend it because it's it's sort of an underdog. But I don't think it's a very good dog. Man, <laughs> so, I, I couldn't find a lot of evidence. I couldn't find a lot of defense for it. Oh, well, you'd be surprised. I've, I've got some things to share with you. But the first thing I want to say is the funny thing about Metallica is that they're kind of like, say, the Rolling Stones. Because they're indomitable. Even their bad records. Like th this, I remember in the in the moment, I'm not talking critically, I mean among fans. In the moment, this record was was hated like the day it came out. And, <laughs> and it didn't even matter because even this record resulted in charting, a Grammy Award, a successful tour. It's like they're bulletproof, you know? It, it's, it's, I, I find that pretty remarkable that in a way they fart on tape, they tour, it's fine. 
Well, I mean, the thing about it, any band that size, even if they put out a, a clunker of an album, you know, they're not going to play that entire album on tour. You know, if you like a band enough, you can suffer through two or three shitty songs to hear all the good ones, you know? Ex- exactly what made me think of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, where did you first encounter this? Did you get it the day it came out? I don't think I ever actually owned the album um, uh-huh. because by the time, you know, this came out in 2003 and like any good, you know, OG Metallica fan, I had completely sworn them off and I would, I vowed I would never give them another dime of my money. Oh, <laughs> after, after load and reload, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it should even the black album for that matter. I mean, I, I oh. kind of, you know, changed direction on the black album later on, but you know, when it came out, I was not real fond of it, but I just, I remember the music video that they shot in San Quentin. Oh yeah. And, uh, I don't remember, I think I might've either seen a video or heard frantic on the radio. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, again, I, I knew it had issues and, and everything, but I, I didn't, hate it and I was I was kind of surprised I I, I didn't know all the backstory really because I wasn't following them in the in the news or anything so I didn't know what was going on behind the scenes yeah I just so just at face value I was like well you know I guess they're trying to win back their old fans that that hate them that's good I guess I don't know you know in a way that's always been what what's bugged me about Metallica is that they they try too damn hard it shouldn't <laughs> be this much work you know, to be to be a successful rock band. Uh, people had a lot to say about this on Facebook, and I was going to do it at the end. I just want to check in with you, though. Have you read them? Do you should we do it backward? Like, should we? Oh, should yeah, we that's do... fine. We can read them. Well, uh, so looking at our Facebook, Tony says, I actually like the title song. But then he says, that's all I got. <laughs> and the, mm-hmm. and St. Anger, I think, is the Grammy winner. Uh, Tom says the use of a Tyco drum set was a sweet choice. He's obviously kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, and we'll get into Lars Ulrich's timbre a little bit later. Robbie, and I feel like Robbie's one of those guys that I disagree with a lot, but I respect his opinion. And he does he does make a cogent point here. Can you imagine how, he says, how, can you imagine how hard it must have been to be Metallica in 2003, Master Puppets is arguably the best metal album of all time, and the Black Album is arguably the most popular metal of all time. What to do next? Uh, good enough point. I don't think that that makes up for its this record's flaws, but uh, still, point made. Uh, Mike says it never made me have less money, <laughs> so hmm. I guess I guess your buddy Mike sort of got wind early and didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. Um, uh, AJ says I like the colors they use for the cover art. So AJ was really digging there. And, uh, okay, so my old roommate is how I heard this, and he actually commented. Phil had a lot to say, and Phil is sort of a, he usually does, especially, this is his favorite band, hands down. Like, this is a guy I used to play, I used to jam in my garage with, and and I'm pretty sure the only songs he knew other than an Alice in Chains song was, was always Metallica. So Phil says uh, they've never written music to cater to anyone. I would disagree with that whole cloth, but all right, let's move on. They write music that's true to themselves. Man, I have a hard time with that as well, but he still, Phil says, good, bad, or ugly in the eye or the ear of the beholder. Uh, He says it takes balls with years of heavy baggage, and it takes an outlet such as music to help get through it and move past it. And of course, he's referencing the the psychological angle in the making of this record, and I would agree with that. It was obviously a difficult task. 
Uh, Phil says this was a transition in their life as a band and played a pivotal role in getting them back to their OG sound of Death Magnetic. You know, I was going to ask you at the end, maybe, maybe we will wait, but Death Magnetic is a, a record I like a lot more than this one. I would not regard it as being their OG sound, though, would you? Well, I mean, it's a step in the right direction, you know. But that's all in my mind. I feel like that's like they're in the ballpark with that. Yeah. With this, they're like a half mile from the ballpark. You know, like they're closer with with, with St. Anger. They're as close to OG as they've been since like, you know, the Black Album. Sure. Yeah. But they were still a ways away, you know, and then Death Magnetic, you know, got them at least in the ballpark. Uh, he says this album still is, is still pretty hard, has a lot more groove to it than other of their albums. And I'm like, well, I guess that's true now that Hardwired is out. Um, he says it takes balls to be open about it and takes balls to switch things up, whether it be received well or not. This album needed to happen. Well, I feel like he's he's he makes some some good points. I I think that, you know, uh, there's uh, I don't know if balls is quite the right word for what it took to put this out. It doesn't take balls, but at the same time, I feel like if nothing else, this record is super raw, not just from a sound point, but just an emotional point where they were at as a band. Yeah. They, you know, if they'd had uh maybe a stronger well see everybody's concerned about money so their managers weren't, weren't going to tell them not to release it but you know they could have right. just shelved this you know they this could have been something they proved to themselves and they didn't have to put it out and just you know just take yeah. another couple of years they could have just went on tour and written new shit with robert trujillo since they got him you know on base up for this tour you know they could they could have done other stuff other than put this out but i do agree it kind of was a necessary step in their you know evolution or you know their progress well, let's talk about a little more about the sound. You said it's very raw. I, I have written down here it's it's kind of naked and, and vulnerable in a way. It's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of um, sadly unguarded. You know, metal music actually I think benefits from a certain amount of pretense, and there there really isn't a whole lot. And it could have been better if it had some more. Uh, this has been characterized as alternative metal. I don't know how I feel about that. Alternative to what? Parts of this album do kind of reek of new metal. Is that what the, that's referring to? I think that, yeah, that's kind of how I took it. Because some of those riffs are really uh, kind of just, you know, cliche, almost like drop D type riffs. Because I think this is the first album where they ever used any kind of, you know, downtuned guitars, you know, drop D, drop, drop C, whatever. I think they changed tunings on a few different songs. Well, they had to have done Drop D before. That's a hallmark, I thought, right? I don't think so. But but drop, you're right, though. They did drop C. They dropped B. I have B flat and A flat. I don't know if it... Mm-hmm. I can't remember if I read that right. Um, but it's either way, it's... You know, I, I, I'm sure you've got some experience with this, but the... the well, like, say you drop from... Your top string is usually uh, tuned to an E. So if you drop to D, it goes lower, the tone. And if you right. drop even further to C or B or A, that top string is really rattling, right? Uh, yeah, unless you've got like heavy, super heavy gauge strings or, you know, eventually they ended up using, you know, those like metalcore bands started using uh, like seven strings, you know, like Meshuggah and, and those right. gent bands, they use like seven strings because, yeah, otherwise it'd just be flopping around like a wet noodle. And that's and that's kind of what Metallica did here. They didn't adopt any extra strings, but they did downtune significantly, which is, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, I think that helps this record. I, I if I enjoy any parts of these songs, it's a lot of times it's because of that. I kind of like the the tone, 
here and there. But but this is a record that is without even one. It doesn't have one solo, right? Yeah, I'm not even entirely sure if Kirk Hammett plays on this album. Well, according to the movie, he did. But yeah, now you now you mention it. <laughs> Who the hell knows? I'm sure he does, though, right? I I don't know. I guess. I mean, I I can't remember now where I read it. So it you know it may just be a rumor. But I read somewhere yeah. that there was an album where Kirk uh, or James went back and and played over all of uh, Kirk's rhythm parts. Uh, that's called pulling a that's called pulling a Billy Corgan. I don't know if that's really what happened, but I wouldn't be completely surprised. Uh, this record is the only Metallica record to to make this mistake. But there there is something to be said about Lars Ulrich and his horrible decision making when it comes to you know determining the sound of instruments or uh arrangements in the studio because famously in 1988 uh i I believe it was it was always sort of said at at lars's feet that they they mixed jason newstead's bass completely out of that record and and it's a miracle that that that's that that album is as good as it is and and similarly on Saint Anger, Lars uh, apparently insisted on uh, really tuning his snare drum so tightly that it it rings, and I and I mean that in a bad way. Well, what I had read somewhere, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, but you know the snare drums, they they have that. I guess that's the actual snare part that runs across the bottom. You know, right? Yeah, and it sounds like he turned that off. It sounds like both. It sounds like he's tuning up the top face, the top head, a lot, and and it sounds like there are no wires on the bottom face. That yeah, is you're right. A pretty bizarre decision. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb here by saying it sounds like shit. Yeah, there there are certain riffs where I I don't really notice how bad it sounds, but then there are others where it's just uh, awful. It makes my it makes my head kind of ring out. You know, it, the, yeah. The, the, the ring of the snare drum just kind of permeates and gets in my head. And it's a terrible album to do that on if you're going to experiment with your drum tones because this album has virtually no mixing and no over... It has some overdubs, but very Spartan. And that that was, you know, if you watch the movie, you'll see that that was, that was certainly done intentionally. Could this album, and I know we're neither of us are producers, but just what does your instinct tell you? Could this album have been made better with with more mixing, more production? You know, in the in the movie, Bob Rock says that he, you know, their their whole objective was to make it sound like a like a garage band, except that the garage band is Metallica. So that's their excuse for the the you know kind of one and gun production, all the you know the vocal takes being so rough and everything. And I get what they're trying to say, but I feel like just a touch of production would have helped tremendously. Just a little, just somebody to rein them in a little bit. This is where Phil's point that this album needed to happen in order for them to be who they are today kind of starts to make sense to me, but only a little. Where we're like, yeah, maybe this is the reset button, right? Well, yeah. And, you know, to be completely honest, since I already mentioned his name, I guess I should just say I, I blame a lot of this album's problems on Bob Rock. I do, too. Yeah. I feel like he got he got so buddy buddy with them and he thought he was part of the band and he just wanted to kiss their ass where he really should have laid down the, some some ground rules and like laid down the law, you know, about what they were doing. Let's do a little more um, background here. Uh, lyrically, this is Hetfield's album. I mean, more than ever before. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, they you know, that's funny to me because they, they always showed 
everyone in the studio sitting around with pads and, and pens, you know, writing yeah. lyrics, but it always seemed like it was Hetfield's lyrics for the most part, you know? Yeah. Well, that or everyone just sort of fell in line behind Hetfield's first person point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, quick sidebar, I did not realize this. I just happened to Google James Hetfield last night. His parents, I mean, this is just a log line, really, but I feel like there's, there's practically a romantic comedy built into this this line. His mother was an opera singer. His father was a truck driver. <laughs> isn't that isn't that somehow so appropriate? Yeah. Yeah, really. Hetfield said upon the release of Saint Anger, there's two years of condensed emotion in this. We've gone through a lot of personal changes, struggles, epiphanies. It's deep. It's so deep lyrically and musically. And I'm like, man, I guess that's technically true because they're your words in a lot of ways. If you mm-hmm. say they're deep, then they are. But it's just—it certainly sounds pretty shallow in a lot of respects. I think he just had a, like a, a, such an emotional attachment to them that he, you know, to him they were deep because of what he went through to write them. But yeah, to anyone else looking at them, it's like, dude, what is this? Well, and you can say anything you want about rehab, but I, I guess maybe the lesson here to remember is that unless you've been through it, maybe don't criticize it. I've never been to rehab, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, music is an expression, but I feel like there's also like a, there's a line there where it, do a confessional album if you want. But I think what Metallica fans want more than anything is to see themselves in Metallica's music. And I think the departure lyrically was was probably a breaking point for a lot of them. You think more than like the like the songs or the music, you know, itself or I mean, just just I'm just theorizing that it's part of it you know it's, this it's couldn't relate to it a lot of these lyrics could be construed as whiny uh you know like it's sort of self-important and you know like i think i read a review let me see if i can find it i read a review of all music's johnny loftus said this is an immediate record written largely in the first person uh, it never warns of impending doom doesn't struggle with claustrophobia and and has care uh, neither for religion safety nor its hypocrisy so in other words you know hetfield's not not we're not writing about um, being trapped under ice. He's, mm-hmm. he's writing about something a lot more personal, which is fine, but it's definitely a departure, right? Yeah. Later on, Hetfield said, St. Anger is just the best that it can be from us right now. And I, I think that's the most true statement I've read about it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, where to go to next? You want to talk a little context? You mean like the, the tension in the band and all that? Well, let's, uh... let's talk about that. Let's talk about the albums that preceded it. Uh, let's talk about Jason Newstead and Napster and all that shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Robbie mentioned, how do you follow up the black album? You know, after you've already had master of puppets and then the black album, how do you follow that up? And I, I think it's kind of funny because the way they followed it up was by cutting off their hair and putting on eyeliner and putting out two kind of marginally decent albums, um, before they got to St. Anger, you know? Yeah. And reload was really almost not even a real album. I, I didn't, it wasn't it just kind of like leftovers and whatnot. That's why they named it reload. It was absolutely leftovers, like yeah. either from the same recording sessions or, or something. But honestly, about as good as Load. <laughs> you know, like it wasn't like it Load was a. It wasn't like Reload was vastly better, vastly worse. It was kind of the same thing. I kind of just see that's what I'm. I mean, like I I t- kind of tuned them out so hard. <laughs> yeah. By the time Saint Anger came out, it's like oh they're they're trying to be hard again. I see. It, it does seem to be a through line with them that they want to get hard <laughs> and uh, they want to go back to their roots because I think that's what they hear from their, you know, the Metallica 
what do they call it? They call it the Metallica Army, sort of like Kiss Army, or is it something else? Oh, I have no clue. But, you know, in 90, I want to say 99 or 2000, they released the Garage Incorporated double collection, right? And uh, and that's that's also, that also harkens back to their earlier roots. And the funny thing about that is, is it's it's generally a lot of covers, and some of them are really good. And that's the thing that gets me about Metallica is that, you know, Reload and Load are, are bad, sure, but they still have one or two good songs on it. Garage Incorporated has uh, more than one or two good covers on it. And uh, and say what you will about the Black Album, but I really like that Black Album. So, you know, really, I think the frustrating thing, for me anyway, and for maybe for others, is is that they keep you, they keep trolling you. They keep you tagging on, hoping, hoping that they'll uh, do something like they've done before and, and never really getting it, but still hoping. Mm-hmm. So Jason Newstead left the band in 2000, and um, it sort of seemed like he had good reason, judging from the movie. What did you gather? Oh, yeah. I mean, my note uh, when they got to him in the movie was that I, put, I wrote Jason Newstead is a fucking hard ass because he was talking about <laughs> how he would never have kids because all he wanted to do his whole life was just be a musician and play yeah. music. And basically, it sounded like they kicked him out for wanting to just have a side project, you know? If you believe Jason, he wanted to launch a trio, which was uh, Echo Brain, um, which really didn't seem that similar to Metallica. I don't know why it would have been a threat, but yeah, I guess Hetfield in particular tried to control him and tried to make sure that Jason wouldn't leave Metallica, tried to make sure that Jason wouldn't do this side project, even though it didn't affect James or Metallica and uh, Jason called his bluff and said, fuck you, right? Yeah, I've got I've got two quotes uh, from James from the movie regarding Jason. He said, I don't know if he was talking to the therapist or someone else, but he said, I didn't want him to enjoy that band more than Metallica. And then he said later on in the same scene, he said, the way I learned to love things was to choke them to death. So, yes, yeah, (laughs) there you go. Yeah, and and so I don't blame Jason for leaving. I do really wish he hadn't. And at one point in the movie, they even tease, you know, Lars says something to the effect of, "Well, I heard from a friend who, who's talked to Jason, who's ex- and Jason has expressed some openness to returning." And it's funny, even though this movie is you know sixteen years old or whatever, I'm like, "Oh, please come back, please come back," because <laughs> he really was the heart and soul. And, and nothing against his replacement, Robert Trujillo, but you know, Jason Newstead was was awesome, right? I don't know. I could never yeah. hear him. <laughs> but I, I did. I loved it when they went to go see the band, when Lars and Kirk went to go see him. And then they went backstage to say hi. And he had already left. Yes. That shit was great. I and loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Lars looked so hurt, man. He was just sitting there with his head in his hands. And he was all he's like, Jason's the future. Metallica's the past. I was like, wow, man, it fucked you hard. He was so hurt, man. Well, and, and it's the same kind of thing, though. Like, he's not going to engage with that shit. I don't I don't blame him because even yeah. Laura's hanging out after the show. They're just standing there kind of tugging on their own dicks. Like, yeah, they're saying that Jason's the future, but I feel like they're just creating drama to make themselves feel bad or or feel victimized or something. It's like, fuck you. You're Metallica. Fuck you. You know, <laughs> they, they just played a gig of, of maybe to 600 people. Like, you can suck it. And that's actually one thing I want to get to at some point is I feel like the, the frustrating thing about this group of people, especially Jason and I'm sorry, not Jason, especially James and, and Lars, is that why is this so hard? You're one of the most successful bands of all time. I understand that has its its you know sort of 
unique challenges and, and challenges I've never actually experienced. But come on, man. Like, you give any other band this the opportunities and resources you have, they're going to make a better record than you made. What the fuck is your problem? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so anyway, all right. So um, the, the Napster controversy was also still kind of bubbling up in the background here. Mm-hmm. So I was a Napster user, and I sort of, you know, in a lot of ways, I I sympathize with both sides because Mm -hmm. it was breaking copyright. It was stealing music. You know, that's essentially what it was. There's there's really no getting around that. Uh, But at the same time, man, Lars could not have made his case any worse than he did. Yeah, that I thought that was kind of funny in the movie because I could see where he was coming from, even though at the same time I could see he was totally on the wrong side of it. It was basically, you know, there was a, a song that we were working on for the Mission Impossible 2 movie called I Disappear that all mm-hmm. of a sudden showed up on radio stations across the country, but it wasn't even mixed, it wasn't even finalized. I think so, I actually downloaded that one yeah. when I was in college. Well, there you go. I was very excited about it. <laughs> there you go. And you know what? I bought I bought the album when it came out. There you go. Um, but so... Yeah. You know, it's well, just not weird, even on the wrong you know? side. Just just why are you the face of it? Let let your publisher do this and launch the lawsuits. You know, why are you doing a Senate committee hearing? This is this is only going to look bad. This is not metal. <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, I mean, he even addressed that I think in the movie where he he realized at some point he was just in way too deep and I think he just was too proud to kind of back away. Like he just felt yeah. like he had to see it through for some reason. It made me wonder Actually, for the first time that movie, who the bigger narcissist is, is it Lars or is it James? And I would have I would have immediately said Lars. And then I watched the movie again. and I went, man, I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's I I really had to reconsider my opinion on Lars after I watched that movie or on James, for that matter. Yeah, I I, I really uh, I don't know, man. I I didn't feel like any of them were super terrible humans. I mean. Um, we could go on and on about the movie. Let me jump into the record here for a second because I was amazed. Nay, nay I was aghast at going back and looking at the ratings, uh, the, the reviews of this record. I thought for sure it would be a sea of one and two stars, and that is not at all the case. Uh, did you happen to look up anything? No, I will not. Not actually. You mean like critics? Yeah. No, I don't, I don't ever really look up the the critical reviews. Are these the reviews that came out at the time or like at retrospective? The time, okay. I actually I actually checked the time, uh, you know, the dateline on all these articles. You know, some of them are kind of playing it down the middle. Metacritic, which is a you know an aggregate site, is three out of five or sixty five out of a hundred. Um, that seems like a very safe opinion. I don't think it's that good. Blender was giving it a similar review, but then you know, Spin eight out of ten. Entertainment Weekly, B+, Rolling Stone, four out of five stars, Enemy, uh, four and a half stars out of five. It's remarkable how well-reviewed this record was. I never would have guessed that. Well, you know, it, uh, a while back, you, uh, earlier, you said that something about how, you know, a lot of fans instantly, you know, hated it, you know, right away. I, I didn't... I didn't really know anyone who hated it, like, you know, right off the bat like that. I oh. I mean, I didn't know a whole lot of Metallica fans in 2003, but yeah. I think that there were so many who still felt burned by the whole Black Album Load thing. Yeah. I think they were just happy to hear something angry and fast again, honestly. Okay. I don't well, know. Just, just in case you're worried it was all sort of either good or better, uh, Pitchfork. <laughs> you can always count on Pitchfork not to pull any punches. 
<laughs> Pitchfork gave it. Pitchfork gave it a zero point eight <laughs> out of ten. So, uh, what do you want to do here, Joby? Do you want to talk tracks? Do you want to talk movie? What do you want to do? Oh, uh, however you think it'll kind of flow the best. Let me ask you this: uh, How many times do you suppose you listened to it over the last week and a half? Oh boy, uh, maybe eight or ten times. Okay, did you shuffle or did you go straight through? Uh, both. Well, let's let's look at the top then. We we open the album with "Frantic," which is um, uh, the title that actually James wanted to use as the as the title of the record, and I'm I'm kind of glad he was. Oh, Lars <laughs> did. Oh, I thought everyone else agreed Saint Anger was good, and and James was like, "Oh, maybe it was Lars." Yeah, it was yeah, Lars because that's right. what I that's when I was really like, "Man, I've got to rethink this." You know, my opinion because yeah, he kind of pushed a little for frantic, and then that that old weird hippie looking guy that was from their management said, "You know, yeah. that implies that you guys don't know what you're doing, that you're scrambling to you know," and then he just totally flipped and was like, "Well, I never thought of it like that." Okay, and just gave up. You know, it's funny. Neither had I, and I was like immediately like. Good point, old guy. Yeah. (laughs) And and I just thought it was amazing how quickly he just acquiesced and was like, okay, fine, forget it. I was like, wow. Yeah. It's like, who who is this guy? Yeah. Uh, In this song, we we get our first taste of Lars' uh, snare drum, and it is, man, it is. I I just, maybe this is a drummer thing, and maybe that's why I hate it worse than you do, but it really does serve as a distraction. It's not good. It's it's not good. But actually, this song, to be honest, I'm kind of in until about 90 seconds. I, I think this might be, it's probably one of the top two or three songs on the record for me. Yeah, there's there's a vague sense of chaos in the beginning, and the riff is kind of rudimentary, but it's good. Um, it's just that production, I think. It's the mixing. It's it's uh, it's funny because I've never been the guy to argue for more production, but here I am, like, oh, okay, we need to do something on a computer mm-hmm. somewhere to make these instruments get along. I feel like this is one of the most um, how would you say it? One of the most complete, like most thought out compositions like uh-huh. i mean this is kind of a, a, about the whole album in general but a lot of the songs just sound like they just threw riffs together yeah like you know oh these are all in the same key let's just throw all these together and make a song and yeah. this one actually sounds like a full complete thought out song and i think that's part of why i i like it a little more i think this could be a really good song like you said the production just kind of kills it i'm not really a fan of the first person lyrics on this um not to mention the awful poetry of my lifestyle determines my death style, <laughs> you know, like that. It, it does. It sounds like an angry 14 year old boy wrote these lyrics. That That's what bumps me about it. And and, you know, James, I'm sure is a nice enough guy, although if you're curious, he is registered Republican. So who knows where he's at these days? Uh, but uh, but there there is an immaturity to these guys, you know, like you get successful when you're 21. And I feel like you kind of stay 21 to a certain degree, you know. Definitely. I, there's hardly any cases of bands who have had success that young who actually 
mature. You know, it's pretty rare. Yeah, and and, and just Lars, just the way he talks, it's fucking this and fucking that, and and Hetfield, or no, it's like that, that's that's Lars's thing. It's cursing and saying like, and then uh, and and Hetfield is just so up his own ass that it's hard to even listen to him sometimes. But um, but the, the the thing about Frantic though is. Why does when I guess is the question. When did Hetfield start singing in earnest? Well, he uh he blew his voice out I think during the I th- black think album, during right? the black album and he had to go get like kind of rehab his voice and go to a, an actual voice coach and that's yeah. when he started kind of learning how to actually sing. And that was man, I'm glad it's good for his throat and everything, but I I cannot stand it when he croons. It is well, yeah, it's so bad. And I think it's even worse on this album because they did so few vocal takes. Oh, they didn't yeah. Even, I, I feel like they didn't even try to, to nail it. You know what I mean? Like they just wanted the vibe that they were going for and they didn't care if it wasn't, you know, good <laughs> or perfect. Well, and, and, think, and know, James can only work four hours a day. So fuck it. Right. Yeah. They only had so many takes they could get out of him. Well, I, uh, I've determined uh, when I was writing my notes, I was said, you have to say one good thing about every song. And the one good thing I can say about Frantic is that there is enough groove to ignore its flaws from, you know, here and there. And I'm glad mm-hmm. to hear you tend to, you kind of agree, right? Oh, yeah. If, you know, if this song just randomly came on the radio or, you know, like if now that I've got the album on my phone, if it just popped up at random, I'd be fine. I'd let it play. You know, it uh-huh. doesn't bother me. All right, so let's talk a little title track. What do you think about Saint Anger? I'm I'm pretty okay with it too, actually. Yeah. Uh, like I said, when I first heard it, I was, I I was okay with it. I never uh, disliked it. Uh, it's it's pretty long, isn't it? Isn't it a pretty long song? It is almost seven and a half. Yeah, that's. I mean, the whole album suffers from that. That that's my other big criticism. I mean. Well, I'm getting no. You're right. How great? Ahead. How great would it have been if they essentially had a punk length record? Yeah, if if these songs were like you know three and a half, four minutes, yeah. which for them is super short. You know the the approach they took to the Black Album, you know, basically where they cut, you know, because what I did, I felt like all these song all these songs are too long, with the exception of maybe two, yeah, two or three. And, and I felt like part of that was because they were just tacking on riffs, you know, like they just have new riffs come in out of nowhere. So what I wanted to do to see if I was just crazy uh, for comparative purposes, I tried to think of the longest Metallica song I could think of, which uh-huh. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. It's one of the longest, surely. Uh, and Justice for All. It's like like nine minutes and 45 seconds or something like that. I listened to that. And the difference between that song and any of these songs is like night and day because that song is so well written and just the whole yeah. it's seamless. The whole thing is one big composition. It's it's just so, so much better. Um, so, I, yeah, I feel like all these songs just suffer from just fatigue. You just are so burned out by the time this by the time each individual song is over, let alone the entire album, because this is like what, an hour and 15 minutes my theory with this is is that Metallica only puts out a record every like seven years at this point, and back then, I mean, uh, for like they hadn't had an actual album out since Load because Reloads left over S and M, which by the way I really liked. I know it wasn't mm-hmm. sort of regarded very well, but I love the S and M performance. That's a live document, you know. They've got Garage Incorporated. They're filling the gaps with what they've got, but it's not a studio effort. And so this was the first thing they'd really 
sat down and recorded since 96. That's seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, wait, is it seven years? Yeah, seven yeah. years. So I, my theory is that they, they bloat their songs on purpose. You know, they, they, they're, I think they're honestly afraid that their fans are going to look at, you know, say a 48-minute runtime and go, what the fuck, bro? The thing I don't like about this, though, is that the drums, and, and it's not just this song, but especially in this song, the drums are so deflated and dead on arrival. And this is the band that wrote Battery for shit's sake. Like, why is it, why is, why does this song feel like a, a, a deflated balloon to me? Well, I, I mean, the, the, the drums just, I don't know. It's, it's Lars. I mean, no matter how much I change my opinion of him as a person, I don't think I'll change my opinion of him as a drummer very much. Um, no, he's not. He's not I, a good drummer. Really. I just, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about the, about the drums. Are you, well, just to make sure I'm understanding you, are you talking about the drumming or just the sound of the drums? I guess I'm talking about, in this case, I'm talking about how he's decided to play the drums on this song and as, and the tone of the drums as well. It's Everything just feels so heavy. You know, it's like, well, I should say, technically speaking, I do remember right after the Black Album, he signed a deal with, I want to say, like, it was a, it, whoever makes his drumsticks. He signed a deal to do a signature set of drumsticks, which were actually made of some sort of metal. And then there was a plastic jacket on the outside of it. And I remember buying a pair of those when I was just learning how to play drums. And they were incredibly heavy. And mm. and it's, it's I don't know, other than him signing this deal with Regal or whoever it was, I don't know why you would use a drumstick that actually slows you down. But apparently, that's what his ego told him to do. And he continues to use those sticks to this day. it's just the production because i hear more of lars drumming on this record than i have any other metallica record and it's because he's not as good a drummer as he thinks he is it's it's kind of cringy maybe mm-hmm. that's all it is so they yeah. actually do overdub some vocals here which is nice and hammett has kind of a melodramatic lead on this not a solo but a lead which is kind of it's kind of nice i, I guess it's not my favorite uh, song on the record but it's it's close to it i think Nice. Yeah, I think it's probably in the top, you know, two or three probably as well. I'm madly in anger with you, though. <laughs> but the one nice thing I want to say about this is that the bridge is bordering on noise rock, which which I never <laughs> I never really noticed before. There is there is sort of an undercurrent of chaos in, in the first two songs, which I kind of like. Yeah. Well, uh, do you want to jump around or do you want to keep going in a linear fashion? What What is the next song? Some Kind of Monster. Oh, okay. Well, let's, let's just touch on that one first before we do anything else. What did you think of that song? 
Well, the one nice thing I can say is it's a cool title. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, should have been the title of the record. Yeah, I, I kind of think so too. I don't know why they didn't uh, why they didn't go with that. Uh, well, I don't have a lot to say about some kind of monster other than that the snare rings so badly on this one in particular. It pairs terribly with the lazy ass lead, and I'm I'm not really a fan of this song. I mean, yeah, for for me, it's a, a lot of the songs fit into the same category where there's just there might be a good riff in there somewhere, but it just gets buried among all the other. N- shitty riffs and just the you know the they can't be saved you know yeah. with the production that bad jump forward then yeah that would be fine what's the next uh, noteworthy song well i have notes on everything but dirty windows the next song and i kind of regard that as the fuel of this record <laughs> and i don't oh, mean okay. that met- the metaphorical fuel i mean the the f- the load you know the saint anger version yeah. of loads song is it load or reload i think reload is fuel um the the lyrics are kind of even worse here because <laughs> Uh, it, it almost reminds me of uh, Steve Carell's character in Anchorman, Brick Tamblin. Do you remember how Brick, Brick Tamblin just said, "I love lamp, I love desk, I love," <laughs> yeah. you know, and and that's kind of the, the beginning of these these lyrics is, "I see my reflection in the window." You know, he's it's I I I am I who I think I am, and it's 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 kind of well. Let's say this: uh, <laughs> the one nice thing I could say about this is it's the second shortest song on the album. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is p- quite possibly my least favorite Dirty Window is my least favorite song here, I think. I'm not sure if I, I, I don't even know what my least favorite song would be because so many of them started to blend together. Yeah. Uh, w- where there's just, you know, like there's a redeemable riff or two on a lot of them, but, but they're just not really good songs. And I kind of forget which ones are which. I, I probably didn't help that I listened to it on shuffle and I listened to it in order. So I never, yeah, I never I was same. totally sure what, uh, what song was playing. Let me refresh your memory. I can give James a, a, a compliment here, although I'm sure it'll be backhanded. Uh, it, it is very honest, this this album. You know, if this is truly a document of his recovery, then it is a pretty honest one. I would argue possibly too honest because 
a lot of these lyrics, whether they're his or not, sort of reveal a more self, uh, a, a pathological self-centeredness here. And I feel like, I almost feel like the psychotherapy almost encourages that self, in, uh, like at some point in the movie, Lars said, you seem, you, you just seem so fucking self-absorbed right now. And I went, yeah, he really does. And to a certain degree, you want him to get better and you kind of want him to focus on himself. But then uh, at some point, there's this false advice that therapy can give you that she could air out their feelings, your feelings, to anyone who will listen, even while you're still processing them. And it's it's it ends up not being a good idea, I think. Um, and, and for the record, I don't know if you caught this in the movie, but he is a pretty self-absorbed guy. He went to Russia on like a trophy hunting exhibition on his son's first birthday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Did you catch that? Yeah. And granted, that's before recovery, but still... Like that kind of gives you a hint about how self-centered he is, and and I feel like Dirty Windows, if you pardon the the use of the phrase, is kind of a window into that. But who knows for sure? Joby, I feel like I'm leading it too much here. Where do you want to go next? Well, uh, just uh, you know, since you mentioned that that therapist, did you catch how much they were paying that guy? Forty grand a month. Woo, man, yeah, that's not- a good gig mm-hmm. if you can get it. Nice work. I'm gonna I'm <laughs> yes. gonna find a band and I'm gonna sign my wife up to be their life coach and their therapist. We're gonna uh-huh. we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna quit my job. It's gonna be fantastic. Wonder what Avenged Sevenfold's doing. Do you feel like Phil, the therapist, helped them at all? I think up to a point he did, and then at some point I began to question his motives. Right. I think at the very beginning he was helping them quite a bit because you know the, at one point. Lars said they were ready to tell him to scale back the uh, the therapy sessions to like every other week. And then they yeah. didn't because there was too much shit going on and they couldn't process it. They couldn't deal with it all. Well, and Phil, the therapist, was pumping the brakes. His name is Phil, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. There was even a point where near the end, James and, and Phil, the therapist, were talking. And I could I could follow. I caught Phil doing this this gaslighting, I guess is the best phrase for it. Where where he'd say, sure, I'm fine with that. But then he would go, then he would go, well, we'll see where it goes. You know, like he'd still keep it open ended. Mm-hmm. So it did kind of seem like there was a conflict uh, there. But that doesn't mean he didn't help them. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. He had been, you know, doing it at that point. He had been with them for God, what, two years, two and a half years and making 40 grand a month. And then all of a sudden they're talking about like, he's going to sell his house and move to San Francisco. And that's when they were like, Whoa, dude, what you're going to do what now? (laughs) And they were already kind of wanting to figure out how to like wean, wean off of that, you know? So I, I I do think he did help initially for a a good portion of the time. But I honestly, I think it it goes back to the Bob rock thing. I mean, he was there every day in the studio with them I think he started to feel like he was like one of the guys or something, you know, like I'm going to milk this. He's even playing bass. He's even playing bass. Who? Oh, Bob Rock. Yeah. 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 So but there was I feel like it was probably an, a, a cheap move on the part of the filmmakers. But there was one scene late in the movie where Phil, the therapist, is actually writing lyrics and wearing sunglasses inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like there was like the imp- the impl- implication there being that that Phil had gone to little Hollywood. Yeah, I believe that. I guess so. Yeah. Hey, let's um, I hate to pile on James Hetfield too much, but there really is an obnoxiousness to him here that I want to I wanted to point out. I, I have written down here. I was listening to my world 
and that's another song with angry teen lyrics. Like, like I've, you know, I read those lyrics. I'm like, is he mad at his parents? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, and and that's the song with sucka, and and you know, why does it feel like it only rains on me and all that stuff? And I thought I wrote down, God, I miss the implied Satanism. <laughs> As cringy as Sucka is, the part after it's actually kind of nice. That's my one nice thing about my world. What's the part after it? It's my world. It's my world. Sucka. I think Shoot Me Again was the, the one that really made me groan. Those lyrics, Shoot Me Again, I Ain't Dead Yet. I was like, oh, yeah. God. There's a, a lot of machismo, I roll yeah. machismo built in there. And that yeah. was the one in the film they made it seem like kind of had the most to do with like Lars and his struggle, you know, his Napster fight. Like that was the one that he kind of related to the lyrics or maybe contributed a little more. Okay. And uh, I, yeah, that, those lyrics just, ugh. That's why I don't listen to lyrics, man. God. <laughs> Funny enough, though, I think the riff on Shoot Me Again might be my favorite as far yeah. as riffs go on this record. It's buried in bullshit, though. It's, 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 you know, this is where mixing really helps a song, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you're right. Lyrically, it's troublesome. The, this is why some recovered alcoholics can really annoy their, their, their friends and family is because they think their recovery is the only thing that matters. And maybe it is the only thing that matters to them. But it's there. There's, there's a lot being aired out here that you know. I'm I'm just trying to imagine where like a hardcore Metallica fan was in 2003, and and, and I'm imagining certainly a number of them sort of rolling their eyes, and being like, "Fuck, man, where's Satan? <laughs> you know, hmm. or or where's where's something other than this? And maybe it's not even James's fault, though. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Where maybe maybe it, this is again asking the question. Maybe this record didn't need to be made. You know. Or at least not released, yeah. I don't know how I feel about the whole uh, lyrics by committee idea. I think that's a terrible idea, honestly. It seems like it, it was one, yeah, in retrospect, right? I mean, generally, I, it's yeah, I think lyrics are not meant to be handled by everyone. There's a reason usually only one or two people write lyrics in a band, because it's not something you just anyone can do. It felt like these guys were were basically writing the album the same way that you write refrigerator poetry, you know, those magnets, <laughs> right? You know, it was just phrases, whatever they thought sounded cool, bro. And, uh, and they, and, and I'm not going to say that it's all garbage. It's not, 
but but a lot of it is. And and also again, it it's it just so so much of it. I think is just because they were surrounded by yes men. You know, I think Bob Rock didn't step up. You know, it, it, we've talked about it. You know, many times before. Yeah. It's not even just music. It's any anything. Like you know, Stephen King, Martin Scorsese. People like once you reach a certain level, no one will tell you no to anything. No. Yeah, and and honestly, your art sells itself. So why would they, right? Yeah, and I mean, you know, Bob Rock had already been their producer for years, and like you said, he was playing bass on this album, so he felt like he was part of the band, and he just wanted to make them happy so that they wouldn't like you know kick him out or something. I mean, because he yeah. even told them at one point in the movie, like he said, "You guys are never gonna find a permanent bass player." Like he straight up told <laughs> yeah. them that, and I was like, "Oh yeah. fuck you!" You know, he doesn't want them to find one. Uh, yeah, well, let's let's talk about um, the the bass player in, throughout the movie here. I mean, I I don't know what the problem was with that fan, the 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 lady. I think her name is Elena or something like that. She was playing uh-huh. bass pretty well. I guess not well enough though, right? Well, either not well enough, or maybe she didn't want to commit. <laughs> you know, maybe she had shit going on, or or they they had you know quote unquote real real players to audition which they did at length it seemed like um i thought the choices uh, they made on who to audition was really interesting uh not in a good way necessarily yeah I mean, sort of just more more their friends than anybody right yeah i mean like well they okay let's see i've got the list like mike uh, inez or inez from allison chains okay i get that okay um, not really a metal guy but certainly an, an accomplished player yeah he can hold his own okay and uh, then let's see who was uh, danny Loner, I guess it is from Nine Inch Nails. I'm not familiar with him at all. No, and and nine, you know, Nine Inch Nine Inch Nails is such a revolving door. That yeah, and, you know, Twiggy Ramirez. Uh, uh, that's where I'm kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> Why? Who was not good? Was not good no. in that audition. He was terrible. Also terrible was Pepper Keenan from Corrosion of Conformity. Yeah, um, like Scott Reeder. I don't really know him, but he was in Caius, so he, you know, I'm sure he can at least hold his own. You know, he can. He's the one. He's the one that his bass had lights built into it. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. And then let's see. Uh, Chris Wise from the Cult. Eh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. That's I'm the, not. The just... Cult is a simpler affair. Not to say he can't do it, but it it does seem like a strange pick. Yeah, and I thought the most interesting choice in kind of a good way was Eric Avery from Jane's Addiction. I thought that was a real interesting that they wanted to give him a shot. I don't know if he, he was a f- good fit, but wow. The funny thing is, is he's like the least known member of Jane's Addiction. It does mm-hmm. seem like he just got in the door on that name alone because I don't think Eric Avery really even was playing at the time. He certainly wasn't playing in a porno for Pyro's. Or uh, or any other major band, maybe he had a smaller project, but yeah, it did seem like a weird a weird fit for him. And, and but then you know then then Robert Trujillo comes out, and I guess part of us you know p- part of me anyway is is sort of prejudiced because I know what's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But but immediately he feels like the right fit.
seemed like such the obvious choice. And I mean, plus, you know, especially c coming from, you know, Southern California, you kind of just know who he is from suicidal and infectious grooves. And I think he played with Ozzy a little bit too. So, you know, you, you know who he is and you kind of, I was kind of pulling for him, you know, like, ah, oh, come yeah. on. Well, and, and this is sort of personal, but I got some great shots of him and he's really yeah. photogenic too. <laughs> yeah. And the look on his face when they tell him he's in the band and then they just turn right around and say, they're going to give him a million dollars, basically a signing bonus. Yeah. The look yeah. on his face. I was like, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> but there, I'm going to turn the camera around a little bit. There also was this. Like they, there was this thing, like especially on Lars, they they really wanted him to flip out. You know, they wanted to feel good about themselves too. It was like you're joining Metallica, and they're not wrong. It is a big deal, but they wanted something for themselves out of that exchange. And I was like, just let the dude process this, Jesus. <laughs> and then I then I realized, oh my God, he's been in the band as long as Jason has was at yeah. this point, which is yeah. crazy, longer even. So. I remember uh, I listened to the uh, the Mark Marin podcast once. I don't listen to it all the time, but I listened to one episode that had Flea and Robert Trujillo on it. No one it, listens to WTF all the time, dude. No one could stand. That. Oh, I bet there's someone. <laughs> but uh, Flea was talking about when he about when Robert Trujillo made, you know got into Metallica. And yeah. he, he basically said, dude, all of us, like the whole, all of us musicians, you know, cause you know, the little underground club, you know, that all know each other. Like, we were so happy for you, dude. We were like, he finally made, it. <laughs> he's set for life. <laughs> yeah. Set for life. And I bet that's true. And that, that is something I do have to hand to the rest of the band in this case is that I thought it was really, it could have been really easy for them to be like, look, you're a hired gun. You'll be paid well as long as we're on tour. You're not going to play on the records. We'll give you a small percentage for X, Y, and Z. But that, you know, it could have been, I'm sure that Robert would have agreed to that. And yet they're, they didn't do that. They said, we want you to be a full member. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to get, you're going to get the same cut we all get or whatever the agreement was. It was, it was, it sounds like it was a really fair deal. Yeah, they, they totally did him solid. I mean, you know, they, they had those clips of the, them sitting down with the lawyers and, uh, the lawyer yeah. explaining to him, like, you know, this is what this means. And, you know, they told him, like, if the movie flops and they don't make their money back, that doesn't affect you. You know, like right. they, they were. Yeah. And then, like, they told him his vote only counted for like 30 percent or something like that or, you know, whatever it was. And uh -huh. Lars was like, no, his vote should count equally to all of ours. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, yeah, they, yeah, they totally did him a solid. I thought they, they treated him pretty fairly. Well, I mean, we're you know, we've kind of covered a, a large portion of the beginning of the record. Is there anything? As far as Shoot Me Again, Sweet Amber, that unnamed feeling, Purify, or, all, or the album closer you want to cover? I mean, we could talk about uh, Sweet Amber. I think that's a pretty decent song, actually. It's a little better than some of those some of those others towards the end there. You know, metalheads really seem to hate bluesy Metallica. And to a certain degree, I understand that because, you know, James tends to croon and sing more on those ones. But I've been known to defend songs like Ronnie or Mama Said off of load and and i mean certainly they could have been better in it in someone else's hands but they're hardly the worst thing that they've ever recorded but but with sweet amber it's like it's kind of starts off bluesy but then we're off to the races again like that's kind of my biggest problem with this record is that they don't know how to slow down and sound good and they also don't know how to speed up and sound good they, yeah but but overall they're they're keeping it speedy and it's it's really exhausting and that's kind of they ruin the song in Sweet Amber here by making it a fast one. 
and emphasizing like how sweet does it get and it's in a way i'm almost like dude you're getting close to mustaine territory there (laughs) uh but you know the one nice thing i can say about sweet amber is the title refrain is kind of sweet like that that part where it lars actually does slow down and then there's actually a part without drums where james believe it or not is singing and i i kind of like it and Mm -hmm. he says "Ooh, sweet amber and that's that's actually kind of uh affecting me. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, yeah. Now that I've refreshed my memory, what song it is? I, yeah, I like it even more than I remember. Yeah, that's that's one of the top, definitely the top half of the album for me. But so many of these songs, it's like a monster with a sexy pair of legs. You know, it's like it's like yeah, I like that that one part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but really, this is a this is uh yeah, this is not something I'd want to you know lie down lie down with. Another another reason why some kind of monster would have been such a great title because this whole fucking album is just Frankenstein together. It really is. Yeah, just like they took a like you know like, like you said that refrigerator magnet shit. They just like threw it yeah. at the. Oh look, okay, that looks cool. Let's just use yeah. all these riffs. Yeah, it's the same thing. Uh, I just want to mention if in I don't it, we don't have to hang out here very long, but that unnamed feeling. For once, there's a little nuance in the title. You know. Mm-hmm. Along with having like a new metal stink, this this has the worst lyrics on the album. This these are lyrics. Do I start writing all this down? Can't you help me be uncrazy? Take the chill off my life. Like all these really terrible hackneyed phrases. I can't sleep in this down-filled world. Like oh poor baby. Uh, cross my heart. Hope not to die. Swallow evil. Ride the sky. Just just really bad. And I and I guess I guess I shouldn't beat this this horse too much because I can't actually remember if Metallica's lyrics are really ever all that great, but on this album, everything's laid so bare. It really stands out. Exactly. The lyrics and the vocals are so clear and out there. Like, yeah, it's just, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh Mustaine for a second earlier. How fucking hard to watch was that scene with him and Lars, man? Oh God. You know, it's funny though. I, I felt I don't remember feeling this the first time I watched it, but I felt real sympathy for him. Did you really? More more than anyone else in the band. Be only because he he seemed it could I mean, I think he kind of was grinding his axe a little bit as you know during that that moment. But there was a moment I thought he might start crying. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I was like, "Oh, well, he feels it at least even though he is all, you know, all kinds of fucked up." Uh, you know, this is at least the emotions are real. (laughs) Well, you know, there's something interesting about that, that scene. Um, do you know, do you happen to know, uh, there's two significant things about the day they filmed that. Oh, what are they? Well, they filmed it on September 13th, 2001, two days after 9-11. Oh, okay. And it happened to also be his 40th birthday. Mustaine's? Yeah. Oh boy! <laughs> so there was a lot of heavy shit going on <laughs> right around the, head. That's the 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 scheduling of that feels like a a, a professional hit. I know, right? <laughs> oh God! And so yeah, there are a lot of things in the air there. 
But I, I, I thought it was funny. You know, he, you know, he kind of sort of, I guess not maybe blamed them, but really kind of wished that they uh, helped him get him to AA instead of just kicking him out of the band. Yeah. And that was kind of funny. And then the quote I have written down from Lars is, uh, it's hard to, I find it hard to believe that all you feel over the last 20 years is rooted in the Metallica thing. <laughs> that just makes me laugh. But, but it's true. It's true. I think. And, he, like, and then Mustaine said something like, people hate me because of you. That's And to me, that's actually, that's that's kind of where my sympathy started to show, where I was like, I bet that's an absolutely true statement of fact. You know, I, I'm sure, I'm sure that people hate Dave Mustaine for their own reasons. It also doesn't help that, that Lars, you know, encouraged it, I think. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about him, honestly. I, I did think that scene was fucking funny, though. <laughs> I will say this. Uh, I, and I'm sure this is a, an unpopular opinion. I'm not sure. Um, I, I find Kill 'Em All to be vastly overrated. Yeah. Yeah. It's never quite done it for me. It's, it's just that it hasn't aged well like the others have, I think, you know. Uh, well, I will say this about one more. Th- I, I just wanted to point out my least favorite song is Purify. Uh, I think that is the worst fucking song on the record and maybe in the world. <laughs> maybe in the world. I mean, if there are parts that border on atonal, I swear to God. Uh, it, they just throw that riff at the wall just to see what would happen, and nothing really did. And worse yet, they run the clock out at the end as well. And and uh, the only good thing I can say about Purify is that it's the shortest track on St. Anger. Yeah. And this and the snare is absolutely. I, I take it back what I said earlier. I think the snare is the worst on Purify. It really, it just sticks out like a zit. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It just has that that ring to it. It's oh. So back, back to Bob Rock, though, a good producer is kind of a gatekeeper in many ways, not only music, you know, the musical elements, but the egotistical ones. And mm-hmm. and just the idea that Purify made the cut and maybe Bob Rock said something, maybe he didn't. But it, I feel like if I were the producer, I would quit over track 10. <laughs> like you guys <laughs> cannot put that on the record. Uh, where, where would you place this in their, you know, in their discography? Like, where does this rank for you? That's a good question. So at this point, they've got, what, 10 albums, 11 albums? 10, right? I thought this was the eighth. This was their eighth, and then they put out two more after this, right? Death Magnetic and uh, Hardwired? Well, unless you count the collaboration with Lou Reed, yeah, it's it's 10 total. Oh, gotcha, okay. I haven't even heard Lulu. I don't even know. I I know it's not well regarded, but... um, yeah, it's it's definitely worse than this in a lot of ways. It, it's weirder though. That's the thing about about Saint Anger that I, I, if they really wanted to make a departure from their sound, I kind of wish they would have gotten weird with it. Yeah. Well, I would I would rank this above Reload. I would imagine 
possibly mm-hmm. even load, but I don't know. I don't know. This album is so long, man. It, it's just, you know, I can get on board, you know, for a song or two if they're the, you know, the, the you know, four, three or four songs we've talked about that are, you know, decent. Yeah. I can, I can be on board. But then after about five, six songs, I'm like, good God, we're not even halfway through this album yet. Well, here's the thing about Load is I remember the songs individually, whereas St. Anger, like you said, it all just becomes this this uh, this one flavor, this horrible milkshake, and uh, and and I lo- I'm looking at the track uh, tracks on load. Boy, I should assign you this. Um, there are there are songs I really like on this. There's the Outlaw Torn. There's Ronnie. There's Bleeding Me. So I and, and that's the thing though is that that isn't a great album, but at least I know the difference. I know what each song is. I don't know a single one of those songs. Well, see, let me let me answer your question. Um, do you want me to rank the ones that came before them or are we just talking latter day? Oh no, all of them. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, number one for me is justice. And uh, I think master would probably have to come after that. I actually don't love ride the lightning as much as other people do, but I I'd still be remiss to put it above or to put it below the black album. But that's the thing though. I, I know metal purists hate the black album, but I'm like, that's a really catchy record, man. <laughs> you know, I know that that record has um, nothing else matters and people hate the ballads and everything, but that some of the heaviest shit they ever recorded was on that black record. So somewhere in the mix there at number three is ride the lightning. And number four is the black album, I guess. Um, then I guess I'd go kill them all, then load, then I'm sorry. Let's go kill them all, then death magnetic, then load, then sane anger, then reload. Yeah, that I guess. sounds probably pretty, pretty close to what I would do as well. I think hardwired is probably, believe it or not, I think it's hardwired would fit below load. I did not enjoy that record. Hmm. Okay. So um, there are a few tracks I could highlight. I, I sort of had this idea that we would, I didn't realize we'd be running this long on that. I guess it's naive of me, but I, there's a couple of songs, Latter-day Metallica that I've added to the playlist, like No Leaf Clover and, hu- and Human from the S&M record, Suicide and Redemption, Broken, Beaten, Scarred from Death Magnetic. I do like Spit Out the Bone on Hardwired quite a bit. And they actually just did a, a really cool, um, well, sort of cool, live performance called Helping Hands, which was, uh, I guess, a a charity effort to help the Masonic, which is, a, a, I'm guessing, is a venue in San Francisco. So, and that actually is acoustic, and it's not bad. So Nice. Uh, I've added a few more here on the playlist, so I'd encourage you to do the same. Yeah. Um, where does that leave us? What do you want to do? Oh, well, you know, just on, in the topic of Metallica, just in a broader sense, I do also have to mention, I've mentioned it before, but for anyone who maybe hasn't listened to our metal episode or whatever, yeah. I have to say Metallica, I think it was around September or so maybe of 1989, I saw them on the final night of their Injustice for All world tour, and that is the greatest concert I've ever been to in my life. Ever. Hands down. Remind me what stood out so much about that particular show. Well, I mean, for one thing, it was them arguably at their prime, uh, in their prime. Uh, but they played for, I want to say probably about three hours or so. Uh, they played, God, it seems like four or five encores. They played like covers. They, you know, they came out faith no more open for them, uh, before they had really caught on. Yeah. And 
uh, the word that went around the uh, Irvine Meadows was that Faith and Moore had gotten booed off the stage the night before. Right. So uh, Kirk and James came out and played War Pigs with them, you know, during Faith No More's set. Um, they all uh, switched instruments at one point. Uh, James played drums. Lars, I think, I think Lars might have just sang. And then uh, Kirk played bass. Jason played guitar. Like they just, they were just having a blast. And it, huh. it really came through, you know, like it was just a, it was a really interesting, I mean, plus the stage show was was phenomenal with that huge lady justice that, yeah. you know, that fell apart during during injustice for all. <laughs> but what I remember is like, I knew the songs really well, you know, cause that was when I was at my fever pitch for Metallica, you know, fandom 89 and yeah. Right. You know, and justice for all was, you know, probably never left my cassette deck. I just remember that they would, they would get to a part where the singing would need to start and James would be nowhere near the microphone. And I would be like, what, what is it? What is they? what's going on? And they would uh-huh. just extend the previous riff to give him time to get to the mic. Oh, they're, like it they're was like, hanging out in the pocket. Yeah. They were like sloppy, but tight at the same time. Like, you know, I'm like, is he missing his cue, but they're covering it that well. Did they plan that this was going to be an extra measure? Like it was just so yeah. weird. I saw them what, two years ago. And, and I mean, maybe I wouldn't have noticed had I not been taking photographs, but the idea that they could just walk like, like, uh, you know, like a hundred yards from one another and still know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's maybe that's a low bar, but everyone who was mobile would go all over the place and mm-hmm. and they never they never skipped a beat, never missed a, a cue that I could tell. It was it seems seamless. And uh, and and I just remember noticing it because I was in the photo pit and and they were just walking up to us for their you know essentially to get their photographs taken, um, and it, 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 that had never really occurred to me how much real estate uh, is being used on a bigger scale show like that. So yeah, anyway. yeah, totally. All right, well, we should do a Spotify wager, and of course, if I would have been smart, I wouldn't have looked at Metallica's Spotify page already, but I have. <laughs> so we can't, we can't do well i should say this i did look at the number one i remember the number one because it really stood out as being an incredibly big surprise you'll never guess what the number one song is on Spotify. number one metallica song uh let me think let me think uh, oh uh what's the name of that song what's the name of that song oh god damn it what's the name of that song i know what song i want to guess um what? uh 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 shit the one with uh, with Marianne Faithful. Oh, uh, the memory remains. Yeah. No, no, it's not that. Uh, I don't. I don't remember if Mem- memory remains is even on the list. But no, number one on Spotify. And it, granted, it doesn't have the most plays. I think it had like the second most plays in the hundreds of millions. Though nothing else matters. Oh, okay. Okay. Which I guess maybe gets the algorithm going on like. Maybe that's included on in-store playlists or something because it's quiet enough. I don't know. It's weird. But I haven't yeah. really looked at – I don't remember any of the other selections. So we still could do Metallica or we could pick someone else. Oh, it, it doesn't matter. Um, it's it's totally up to you. Well, it would be appropriate. I feel like we've already done Metallica is all. We may have. Yeah. But it changes. Sure. Let's do it. Why not? And just take uh, Nothing Else Matters off the table. Yeah, I guess it's your turn though, right? Because you well, had the last assignment. Yeah, I lost last time. Okay. I oh, jeez. Yeah. There's so many that I don't like that could be so popular. Because you know, honestly, my first instinct was to say fuel, 
but I I don't know if I if I'm right with that. And then I remembered that they covered some shitty classic rock, and there might be people who really like that, you know, like those songs, yeah. like Turn the Page and uh, Whiskey in a Jar and all that shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. God. Now nah, you know what? I'll just I'll just stick with my instinct. I'll say Fuel. Nice. Oh, I'm I'm so sure I'm going to win this now because <laughs> to me, the most overplayed song that Metallica ever recorded was Inner Sandman. Yeah, I feel like it has to be that. Or what about one? One was huge. Yeah. 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 If it's until it sleeps, I'm going to fucking I'm going to lose <laughs> something. All right. Let, let's take a look. Metallica. Oh, okay. So our instincts are pretty well. My instincts are pretty good on this. <laughs> fuel, fuel is not on the list, my friend. Oh, okay. Going from number ten up to number one, it's Seek and Destroy, Fade to Black, Sad but True, For Whom the Bell Tolls. That's another one I would have considered if I would have slowed down for one second. Whiskey in the Jar did make number six, so there's the there's, that's what you were talking about. Uh, one is number five. The Unforgiven is number four. Then Master of Puppets, then Enter Sandman, and nothing else matters. So, yeah, okay, that's all. Guess who's listening sense. to Load this week? Oh fuck! <laughs> Great. All right. Uh, I really want to see if I can get you to find some some good things to say about that record. I don't know. I you know it's funny. I remember talking about the Black Album. Uh, you know, I I don't hate that album uh, anymore. Um, uh-huh. I think it's probably their best sounding album and the testament to how great of a sound that how great that album sounds is sad, but true. Yes. Cause absolutely. that, that riff, you can't pull that riff off without a killer sound. Cause that riff is so simple and basically just relies on the heaviness of the guitar tone with that palm muting. Yep. Um, but, you know, I remember my dad, of all people, I think I talked about this on the metal episode, um, my dad defending them when I was when I was so upset when the Black Album came out for saying they had sold out. And my dad was like, you know, they, they've got to make a living, you know, like you know, being a, a cool band is one thing, but they've got to, you know, make money. And I was like, but they sold out four nights at Irvine Meadows when I went and saw them. They're not broke. They're not hurting, yeah. And I was, I was just so like, I remember, you know, because this is back before albums leaked and before you could hear an album in advance and all that. So I remember sitting on uh, my parents' bed because I didn't have MTV in my room, Uh waiting to watch uh, the video for Inner Sandman. And I remember it coming on, and once that main riff kicked in, I just was like nodding my head, kind of blinking, like, "What the fuck is this?" We we'll have to touch on this next week because I I really have like a gap in understanding it how because it doesn't it sounds different but to me it didn't sound that different. Well, that's the thing. It, it there are there are similarities like there are traces like if you go there's a clear line between like what would I say like maybe like Harvester of Sorrow and uh, uh, wherever I may roam like I can hear similarities between those you know there's a, a kind of a through line there but. Yeah, it's still it, mm. it. This makes me. This makes me want to change your assignment. Have you listened to the Black Album? <laughs> oh wow! Well, it's up to you. I mean, either way. 
I love the Black Album, actually. I mean, I guess love isn't the right word, but it, it's, it's, uh, I feel like it does stand on its own. All right, let's do the Black Album then, because that, I'm really, now I'm more curious to see if you'll do any, um, you know, historical rewrites. Well, well, we'll see, I guess. I'll, uh, I'll give it a listen. Hey, listeners, if you made it this far, I got to thank you because this has been our first deep dive, and I'm sure this was a lot. Uh, but please make sure to check in with us at facebook.com slash the ringing year on Twitter and Instagram at the ringing year. And, uh, you hit us up directly at Jeff nail N A L E and books of Job J O B E on Twitter and Instagram. And, you know, if you've liked what you've heard, it would be uh, kind of nice of you. It'd be helpful if you wanted to subscribe and give us a rating and or a review. Uh, actually I wanted to go out of my way. Maybe we'll even start, um, name checking and reading the reviews if people would start. Cause I know we have more listeners than we used to, but we don't really have any new, uh, new reviews or, or ratings. So anyone who reviews us on iTunes or wherever, we'll, uh, we'll read it here on the air. Uh, Job next week, I believe is music out of Mexico, right? Yes. And if I remember correctly, we're going to have a genuine Hispanic Yes. Yeah, my good friend Maria will be here, and uh, and Maria and I used to work together, but we're still really close. She was actually in my wedding. We're such good buddies. So. Oh, wow. And just um, to make sure I'm, I'm clear, because I think we, we might have tweaked it, it's going to be artists from Mexico, not songs about Mexico, right? I, I, w- I would like it. We're, we're sort of doing this in a hackneyed way, too. In sort of an awkward way to, to uh, acknowledge Cinco de Mayo, but I know that Maria is not a big fan of that holiday, so it's sort of both. We'll take the piss out of Cinco de Mayo and we'll we'll celebrate it. So, okay. Um, but yeah, I would like all the artists to be Mexican, and maybe we'll even uh, we'll even let Maria take the lead on this, and she'll give us some homework. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right. Well, uh, while we're at it here, let's go ahead and plug the website. Don't forget, everyone, to visit KillBoringMusic.com to find our reviews, photos, uh, links to the Spotify playlist for every episode. It's KillBoringMusic.com, your ally in the crusade against boring music. Our theme song at the top of the show was written and performed by Eat Sleep Catapult. You can find their EP, Little Did You Know, wherever you buy your music. So please go ahead and do just that. Unsigned artists... Send us your songs at KillBoringMusic.com to be featured in our Unsigned Artist Spotlight. KillBoringMusic.com slash contact. And uh, Mr. Nail, who do we have in the spotlight this week? Dogs. D-O-G-S. That's an acronym, Dogs. Out of Tokyo, Japan. The album is The Gate. Comes out on April 27th. I believe that episode will be out after that date, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, what did you think of this, Job? Well, it, it took me. I warmed up to it eventually. Uh, my first instinct was kind of uh, kind of meh, uh, but I actually ended up kind of liking it. I was I was skeptical because they are not uh, an American band. They're not a North American band. They are from Tokyo, so yeah. I, I don't know why. That's just so typically American of me to not expect <laughs> much from a band who's not you know from America or Canada or something. Or um, Europe, but, yeah. Yeah, they made me eat my words. <laughs> so, uh, and what song were we? We're going to do Hang Rope, right? We're going to do Hang Rope. Yeah, I get a distinct grunge feeling out of the vocals. That's really my, my biggest nitpick out of this. And no offense to lead singer, oh, I can't remember his name now, I'll look it up here in a second. But the vocals really aren't doing it for me. The music seems to be pretty on the good side. Um, but, yeah, not a fan of, uh, of the, the vocals so much. Kind of blah. But also good enough, the the song itself, you know. So they'll probably put that as their the the like that quote's gonna be on the banner of their web page. Dogs, good <laughs> enough. 
<laughs> yeah. It sounds like they had an opportunity to record with Jack Andino of Nirvana fame uh, in Seattle a few years back, and they got stopped at SeaTac and weren't allowed in the country. And it's a pretty heartbreaking story, but I guess they've, they've, they've at least gotten... They've at least gotten their shit together enough to, to record this record, so. It all worked out for the best. Yeah. So taking us out this week is DOGS, D-O-G-S, as an acronym, DOGS, with their track Hang Rope. This is Jeff reminding you, as always, to fight the good fight, reject the rudimentary, slay the simple, murder the mundane, kill the boring, and by God, be sure to keep your ears ringing. Nah. All right. <laughs> that is very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.